0: This episode of Death of a Thousand Cuts is supported in part by Mslexia magazine, the UK's best-selling magazine for women who write. To subscribe or to check out their competitions and submission opportunities, visit mslexia.co.uk. Hey there, you lovely, lovely gang of writers. How the devil are you doing? So today's episode is me having a chat with the author... Lauren Groff she's written i think three collections of short stories and three novels um which have which have done tremendously well she's a best selling author her uh, her last novel Fates and Furies was chosen for Barack Obama's book club and uh, he called it his favorite novel of the year so she's the she's the second she's the second author we've had on who's um been picked for Barack Obama's uh book club it never occurred to me that he would end up mo- fo- taking on the uh, his post-presidential career would be quite so Richard and Judy but it's amazing it's amazing right um I tell you, the better sell than me, kind of like just reading her out her list of achievements, which are um, many and impressive. But it's just to say that I've been reading her latest collection, Florida, and you know me, I have a, I definitely have a a, a, a predilection for um for stories where. Cool swashbucklers fire a crossbow at a at a uh, at an undead dragon or something silly like that. Um, and I, I don't apologise for that. But I, you know, I, I I often like quite weird books, and this is a book of short stories set in Florida. Some of which are interlinked, but are all uh, co- held together by sense of place and i was interested but it didn't strike me as something that i would love But I, I love i love it so much i was absolutely, and i am not i'm a i'm a i'm not saying i've got particularly good taste but i'm certainly a grumpy git i'm like hard to please not not because i'm some kind of literary genius just cuz i'm a fuss pot like a like i'm, I'm like the the reader equivalent of a picky toddler when it comes to books and 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 anything can sort of turn set me again something uh it's not uh, you know it d- doesn't really map very well onto books that do particularly well or considered classics however um i am an enthusiastic end user of these things we call stories and i read a lot and uh, i mean you hear in the interview i <laughs> Uh, just, just to, just so you know, the sycophancy isn't something I put on to try and butter up guests. I've been pretty lucky so far in the guests I've had, and also because I choose most of them myself, right? And I get to select and I sign off on all of them, right? Uh, that's why. In case it just sounds like I'm blowing smoke up people's ass when they come on the show and I go, "I really like your book," that's no accident. I, I agree, and to, I pick out people who I like anyway. Um, I got to speak to Lauren, and just her writing is fucking good. So I'm just telling you that now, right? You should. I'll put a link to uh, Florida in the uh, in the in the show notes. Um, I suggest you click through them and, um, and buy it because you'll really like it. It's amazingly the short stories. They're really digestible. You know, you can you can kind of like hammer through it, but it's the language is amazing. The imagery is amazing. The characters are amazing. It's just. It's just alive. She, You know, she's done it. <laughs> she's done the thing that we all want to do, right? She's just, the stories are alive. And uh, that, this obsequiousness will definitely come through in the interview. But I loved talking to her, and I, I'm saying it to you. So when you hear her make the suggestion she does and talk about how she works, you understand that I am co-signing that as these things have worked so i literally get to the stage where i just go um th- how the fuck did you do these word spells how how did you do this sorcery you you warlock you you and and um and she answers very graciously and Really amusingly in detail, and comes out with some fascinating things. I'm, le- I'm, I, you know, I say it every time, oh, I'm learning so much, but I am, and I think I just, I just beg of you to listen to all these different authors talking, because if you are listening and you are listening well, you will get something of value that immediately benefits your writing. Out of every one of these interviews I've done, because she just comes out with some great stuff, some. Um, I, I guess some ways of working that you might find, uh, you might find slightly eccentric or even shocking, but they've produced some fucking great work, and it's wonderful to hear. And she was so enthusiastic, and uh, put up with a lot of badgering from me, so I, I really appreciate her uh, coming on the show. As usual, you can let me know what you think of the episode by uh, going on my website, timclairpilot.co.uk and clicking on the uh, Contact Me link on the right. That allows you to email me. I'd always love to hear from you and how you get on with your writing. Um, And if you enjoy the show and you would like to drop me a couple of bucks to help keep the lights on, help me you know, have the time to find more amazing people. So I'm I'm having a ball doing this though, guys. You know, like I, I really just appreciate all the support you've given me so far because um, I am having the time of my life and it's making me feel so inspired and I'm going to go and do some writing after i finished recording this intro. But um, anyway, I'll shut up now. I want you to listen to this and I hope it makes you feel inspired to do some new things in your own writing and go and buy florida because it is amazing here's me chatting to lauren gruff hello welcome to death of a thousand cuts making you an awesome writer one cut at a time my name's tim clare and i am Delighted, and uh, if I'm honest, like mildly intimidated. But I'm getting better at being uh, less nervous now. Um, to be joined today by uh, the author Lauren Groff. Um, h- hello, Lauren. How are you?
1: I'm doing very well, thank you, Tim.
0: Uh, it's it's really lovely to have you on the show. And I've been I've been immersed in your uh, fictional worlds uh, for the past week, and um, and it's been a very intense experience. Actually, I'm not sure. I, I normally try and avoid experiencing actual emotions, and so it's been. It's been. It's kind of woken me up in ways that I wasn't quite ready for. But the first thing. Well, 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 well done. You've cracked. You've cracked the the thin, the thin veneer of masculinity that I try so much to build with my, with my. Uh, with my wild man beard, um, it's that my beard has been soiled with the salt of, of, of tears. The century flower of my weeping has opened.
1: It is my only goal in writing, so I'm happy about this.
0: Can you um, can uh, for the uh, at the risk of um pandering to convention, could we leap right back and talk about the beginning for you um? When did you first start to get an inkling that stories were something special?
1: Well, I mean, I I was a pathologically shy child. And I think sometimes when you are a pathologically shy child, you prefer books to human beings, um, because at least books you couldn't control by closing and opening at will. Um, And I also have a uh, profoundly loud and... um, entitled brother, Um, and he's my older brother, and I I found sort of a space of peace in books. Um, But I didn't start writing until middle school, about 12. And at first I was a poet, or I thought I was a poet. Um, And then when I was 18, uh, I made the um, shift, almost like a very solemn vow to do fiction. I I took a class and I realized, oh my gosh, poetry is not for me, but fiction absolutely is. Um, and, uh, I made it sort of the immovable rock in the center of my life. Um, and, uh, you know, I wrote and I wrote and I wrote three novels before my first one came out. Um, I had no success at all for the first, uh, eight years of my writing career. And then, um, slowly I started to be able to write, um, after trying very hard for a very long time. That's about it.
0: Can you remember, can you remember like an early story that, or something that you read that made you think holy shit you know like one of those things that you was there were there any like early authors or stories or even even poets that uh that really like knocked you for six or grabbed you or or had you in that joyous union
1: oh so many right so it's almost as though I I will forget um the thousand in order to talk about the one but um the one that really made me believe that I, too, could do this, which is hilarious in, in retrospect, is uh, Emily Dickinson. My friend Lisa's in session at um, 12 years old at a birthday. I think she just, like, she didn't have a birthday gift for me, so she just took, took uh, a collected poems of Emily Dickinson <laughs> off her parents' shelf, um, and she gave it to me. And the thing about Emily Dickinson is she's so... Uh, elliptical and she's so strange um and she uses uh, short phrases uh short easy words and i thought i could do this right i can i can make this feeling happen in other people so uh she was really the one that made me think uh made turned me from a pure reader into someone who thought that she could write
0: yeah she doesn't um dickinson isn't like pound who's like going you know do you know latin do you know italian well then then this is this poem isn't for you chum like she doesn't she's certainly not putting up those vocabulary barriers doesn't necessarily mean that the poems don't have a richness and depth to them it doesn't necessarily mean you can just read off a meaning and that's it the poem's dead um but she does a lot with uh quite a constrained vocabulary sometimes
1: yeah, so the the constraint is the form, right? I mean, the, I think sometimes you find liberation in form, and that's the one major gift that uh, being a poet first gave me, was this idea that um, form doesn't contain an idea, form actually expands the idea. And I think that her form was almost uh, anorexic to the point that it was liberated. Um, So she she has constraints so deep and so hard that she has to find ways around them, and the ways that she finds around them are are profoundly ingenious and almost uniformly ingenious. It's an extraordinary feeling. When when you're young, you just think, you know, she's using words that are familiar to any twelve year old, right? Her the vocabulary. I mean, there are a few, you know, nineteenth century um, strange things thrown in there, but you think that you can do this also because it's just it's a it's simple on the surface and the deaths um, go on forever.
0: I, I'm, I I think it's, I'm so jealous of you that you made that realization or you got a hint of that early on because, you know, it's hard not to hit 18 and, and think I need to show the world, especially if you're, you know, a slightly withdrawn child with maybe a slightly advanced reading age, you want to show the world. I know the big words. This is how I can prove that I, I have a right to be in this club. Watch, I'm going to use the word paradoxical. Uh, gasp, as I, I I I use the word onomatopoeia. Uh, and yet to have that, it takes such... I know it sounds odd to say bravery, and I don't mean it patronisingly, but that uh, that confidence and that boldness of simplicity is bloody hard. I think it's amazing that you glommed onto that so... So young, because I, I don't know if I, I've done that now.
1: Well, I glommed on to the idea that maybe I could do what Emily Dickinson was doing. But let me tell you, I was as pretentious as anyone I mean, I, from the beginning. So <laughs> what I what I found interesting was like, um, here's someone who's also a woman who is also relatively, you know, young, even when she died, who wrote these crazy poems. Um, but I felt like I could I could do it. Um, but that doesn't mean that I felt that I wanted to do it just like Emily Dickinson. I mean, I, I really did want to show off. I was a, and I still probably do too much. Um, and I, you know, we love Latinet words, right? I, when I started learning French, I would write poetry in French, and it was all bad and it had <laughs> terrible grammar. But you know, like it was, it was. I, I think um, you have to get that that egotistical sort of um preening the sort of peacocking out of your system and i think almost everybody has it in them and then eventually you can write with uh more humility and modesty <laughs> but i i you know there, there are times when you know i'll reach for a, a 50 cent word when i actually only need you know the anglo-saxon and uh i have to check myself later in editing still yeah
0: I, I, I want to, I'm so, I'm kind of like straining at the bit to um, get on to Florida. But before we get there, I just want to, um, it sounds dismissive to say, fill in some of the, the blanks, you know, the years before the the kind of like the build up to the main event. But um, can you talk about your, your first experience, your first novel, uh, The Monsters of Templeton, and a bit about your experience of going from, you said, you know, you had years of sort of, writing and doing stuff and and then you you had this novel uh published I guess it would be 10 years ago now um um could you talk a bit about that please
1: sure so I um uh after uh the college I decided that I was just going to write novels and so um I had a bunch of relatively bad jobs. I was a bartender. I was an um, administrative assistant, and all the while I did it so that I could write books. And so I wrote three books um, in uh, three years, and, I, and they're all bad. And then I went and got my MFA at the University of Wisconsin-Madison where uh, they give you money in order to go, so you actually end up making a profit. Um, in, in order to work with Lori Moore, who was my queen at the, at the time. And she's still, um, just a bright light in my sky. Uh, and it was there, you know, I finally didn't have to work, right? I, I taught one class a semester, but I didn't have to really, really work. So I would just get up and I would like write for 12, 14, 16 hours a day for two years. And, um, I was writing, the novel in the morning, which I kept to myself, and then short stories in the afternoon, which were the things that I workshopped. So um, by the end of uh, um, Wisconsin, I had most of a collection of stories and um, at least the first draft of my, uh, f- my first real published novel, uh, which I had written because the thing that I discovered in the writing of the three previous ones is it's not um, any book. Uh, a writer can see to the end, to to publication, I think. But it's a, I think for, I think it's um, a matter of willingness. Like if you're, if you choose the right subject, you will be willing to go all the way and you'll do all the drafts necessary and you will believe in it um, to the point that eventually it is publishable. And the first three... Uh, books that I wrote, I just hadn't chosen the right subject that made me willing to, to chase this this idea or these uh, collective ideas down to the end. And then with the Monsters of Templeton, I was so homesick for the my hometown, which I'd been away from for years at this point, that um, I just wanted to live in Cooperstown for a little longer. Um, James Finmore Cooper is from Cooperstown. His father started the town, and when James Finmore Cooper talked about it, he, uh, he wrote about it. He wrote a lot of fiction actually based in this fictional town of Templeton, which he based on Cooperstown. So I stole this literary trope Um, and I went through the history and I, I made the history of the town go sideways. Um, and I was, I, I played around with actual historical facts and documents, but also false ones and also literary ones in order to create a mythological vision of my, my hometown, which I found incredibly fun. Um, so as soon as I was finished with, uh, Madison when I was a grad student I had basically two books um and was able to sell uh my 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 first my novel then my story collection and that was um you know it seems uh, from the from retrospective vision that uh it was easy but it was so many years of just banging my head up against the white page and struggle
0: why did you keep going
1: Oh, because I don't, I'm really (laughs) pig-headed because I, you know, I believe that once in a while when you sit down to write, even if you're not very good, you will seize on something that's alive, that's sort of in your hands, suddenly wriggles, and you can see the, um, the pallor and the death all around it, but what you really want to do is make more things that are alive, Right. Them, feel that feeling all over again sort of the exhilaration of making something you know is good or right or the image is exactly right um and because I came from poetry too I love language I mean that's that's the medium in which I want to swim all day long so I I really just um I the, it was all I wanted to do I um I dreamed of it um, and I got lucky. I have uh, people around me who are incredibly supportive and um, uh, gave me the opportunity to spend years without making much money and, and doing this thing and staying alive.
0: You make it sound, well, no, I mean, I may be, I may be uh, adding too much of uh, a spin on this, but the way you talk about it then and, and language being alive and that moment, where you seize upon something that's living, you make it almost sound like an like an addiction. It's like you found this kind of like potion and you drink it and you're off to the fairy court. <laughs> and, and what I want to ask you is like, what's it, do you have any advice or what have you found that gets you through the hangover of like when you wake up just like, with like a headache in a ditch uh all the magic has gone and you just and just the the brutal reality of what you produced yesterday is there and it's not alive it's this it's this horrible kind of false facsimile this this tinny ersatz <laughs> m- fake thing and you you know what the real thing tastes like because you've touched it and no 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 this isn't it and i know i am getting into i'm kind of painting a stereotype of the kind of frustrated artist but how do you, because that seems to me those ups and downs seem terribly stressful and you know what is it like an addiction
1: well it is like an addiction in some ways but i also think that it's um it's a mindset right so i um I I came to understand a couple of things uh, about the creative life, and one is that it's rarely ever linear. Um, things happen to you uh, almost on the sly, out of the out of um, your direct eyesight. Things are actually happening, um, and most of the change that happens in a creative person happens in the subconscious. So I, I came to this understanding uh, relatively early, actually, and so that meant to me. That um, the things that I thought I was doing badly on the page at any given moment uh, were actually sparking interesting things happening under the surface. So um, a lot of the work that I saw on the page, the, the, the bad dead work, was actually giving rise to something living behind it all. So um, my vision of writing is not that you're going to be successful all the time, and in fact, that you have to embrace the idea of failure, because failure is beautiful. Failure is um, you doing your very best in trying and um, coming up against the limits of your own abilities and your own knowledge and your own understanding. And so if you humble yourself to failure, it means what you're doing at the moment, um, if it's not working and it's not living does not matter as much as the really slow and patient work that's happening in the background. Um, And if you do come up against your own limitations, well then you can decide whether you want to push against those limitations or you want to embrace them and work them and use them um, in your work. Uh, For instance, I think that um, people, someone like Cormac McCarthy Uh, at a certain point, realized that he has no idea how to write a woman. So he's going to create these virile seer manscapes in the uh, American Midwest that don't contain women and therefore um, show how brutal and violent uh, masculinity is, that it's very hard, right? So out of his profound failure came his profound um, victory. I think if you see um, artistic creation as not... um, an end product motivated uh, commercialist, um, you know, very uh, capitalist thing. But as a sort of a process, um, it's much, much easier to throw away what you've done before because you know that there's something deeper and something more interesting that's happening underneath. The other thing, too, is, and I stole this from this um, interview of Ann Carson, who is possibly my favorite living writer. I just find her insane and wonderful. Um, but she um, she has uh, in her studio certain different spots where she writes different work, and um, I stole this. And I actually I do multiple work at a t- multiple books at a time. Basically, I'm I'm working on multiple things at a time, and um, in different parts of the room. Because what this does is it enables you to um, to allow the the failing work to recede back into the subconscious and the things that have energy in them, that have heat in them, you can go to that part of the room and seek the heat, right? So if you're seeking things that are exciting, that actually fill you with light, that fill you with joy, that um, make you grateful to be a writer, you're not going to think about your failures as failures. You're going to think about them as, well, it's just not there yet, but it's, it's being worked on. Um, and so I do multiple projects at once in order to sort of chase the heat.
0: Oh, Lauren, you're blowing my mind. <laughs> That's amazing. This has got everybody write this down. You know what? It reminds me. There's a there's a, a stand-up called Jim Owen who has a bit where he when he gets on stage will um will walk around a little bit um holding the mic um not saying anything and then at some point pause, look at the audience and say, "I'm just trying to find the funniest part of the stage," uh, and inevitably they'll laugh and then he gets to walk backwards into the onto the bit of the stage he was on when they laugh which then produces another laugh and then he's off off to the races that's so so that's i mean that's a wonderful i so you work you you work on things serially um in parallel then you 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 have multiple projects on the go because so you know some people say to me oh gosh you can't you've got to pick one thing and stick at it because otherwise you'll you know that's a form of displacement activity but you firmly believe that those things do they i mean do they end up bleeding into each other
1: We do. And
0: here's the beautiful thing about it. They actually,
1: they're like whales and they sort of sing under the surface of your mind. Um, So uh, I, you know, you sometimes have a short story you've been sort of embroidering in the back of your head for a really long time. And you sit down to write a novel. And, you know, sitting down to write the novel means sitting down over and over and over again to write the novel (laughs) um, and carrying it with you throughout your day and sort of feeding it little pieces from the grocery store and just having like a little buddy on your shoulders all all the time. Um, But, you know, you'll be embroidering this secret story and this sort of more, I guess, public because you're you're focusing on it novel and suddenly something in the novel dislodges something that has been stuck in the story and the that's what you can do you you see the whole story and you're able to just get from beginning to end and it comes out in this ecstatic rush so i do believe that if you hold things in your in your mind and if you're actually um constantly working on multiple projects at once it's okay if one of them doesn't succeed immediately because it will come back to you um, I don't think anything in art is ever truly lost and I think that a lot of times it's the seeking that makes you understand what it is that you're trying to do anyway. So um, just incorporating that into your process um, makes it uh, makes the frustration fade. It's not to say that I'm not frustrated by my work all the time. I'm frustrated by my work all the time but you know as soon as I feel like I'm about to cry or as i cry a lot so as soon as i start crying (laughs) i move on to the the other thing that's sort of boiling and i try to find the source of heat there
0: that's so oh my gosh that's so cool so can can you tell me about like can we talk a uh, a little bit about jump forward to arcadia now because that is you know that's a very different story again and it's also it's also like you know the difficult second novel syndrome right like I, a lot of a lot of people who listen to the show ask me about query letters and how to write their first novel but the thing I get from authors over and over again is like the secret kind of agony of writing that second novel in what feels like uh, it's like they're they're writing and they feel like they're writing in the middle of a floodlit football pitch right they suddenly feel like they're doing what was a private uh sort of joyous absorbing thing with the full glare of attention upon them how was it for you
1: well exactly right so so suddenly you have uh people who have read your books and are waiting for another one i um i i feel like sometimes uh we don't we talk often about how Uh, motherhood is killer for a lot of the elements that go into writing but for Arcadia in particular um, because uh, I was in the process of having children then it actually, motherhood um took me out of myself to the point where I didn't feel necessarily the second novel pressures because I had so many other more brutal pressures happening because as soon as you put a ch- an actual flesh and blood child into the world it's as though you've replicated your own heart and suddenly it's at loose in, in in the wilds and um it can be very easily it's vulnerable right it can very be very easily trodden upon so um so I um I I was so overwhelmed with anxiety about, uh, parenthood that the anxiety of writing the second novel felt relatively minor in comparison, which is uh, very good. Um, that said, so Arcadia is very much about, um, depression, right? And it's about, um, feeling, uh, about the end of the world, about the, um, the idea that, um, in previous, uh, uh, generations there have been these uh, movements toward utopia which have failed, and um you know human culture is failing right um, and it 's almost a utopian um, uh, failure in a certain way too. But, and I came, like, and, and why was I bringing kids into a world of failure, right? Why was I bringing children into a world where they're inevitably going to suffer and possibly, and definitely die at someday, someday. And that feels like, a, like having children is the er utopian uh, project. So um, I was struggling. I was struggling a lot with these, these ideas, and I was really dark, and I was, like, going down into this death spiral and um i and I realized that I needed to to write this novel really, really desperately in order to understand why 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 we do this to ourselves and I came, and this was the the closest I've ever come to writing a book um, as catharsis, um, but this book was really me arguing with myself to the point where I understood the reason why people um enter into utopianist projects right um or, or bring children in the world it's because um, the pursuit of them is is noble, even if the end result is going to be failure. It's the pursuit that actually matters. So um, I I wrote the book um, uh, relatively quickly, and um, I owed it to my publisher in the U.S. at the time, too, which was also another source of stress and (laughs) tension. And it was a really, really hard book to write, but not because it was a second novel, but because of the subject matter of the book.
0: Do you think that... I'm really interested in what you say about this idea of... uh, Like, the the nobleness of... Because this... I mean, it's kind of something that I've got from reading your stuff as well, or or it's something that I've really felt there's a thread going through it, but this... That there's something inherently there's something like in, inherently I, 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 I mean i don't actually I don't want to sum it up too quick too glibly because otherwise it sounds like there's like a twee little kind of greeting card kind of theme that one can just sort of read off the end but this this idea that there is something uh noble and uh dramatic and kind of and kind of beautiful in its defiance about uh hope or or kind of trying to fix something even when it looks like it won't work or even when uh entropy is all around you kind of like just sucking at the sand around your feet um do you did you when you talk about writing it and getting that kind of sense of catharsis out of it do you did you did you did you did did it did it work
1: Oh, it absolutely worked. So, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I also, by the time I finished Arcadia, I had f- finished having children. <laughs> so so yeah. I was done um, with the with the actual, I mean, I'd made my bed. I had to lie in it now for the next 18 to, you know, 40 years. Um, but uh, so the the issue was, um, you know, I really did. I really, I, I sat and I struggled on a daily basis to come to this conclusion and it really really did work but that also made writing in some ways um, not easier because writing never gets easier this is one of those things that um, people don't realize until they're actually in it. Um, Writing actually the further along you get gets harder but it did make my decision to devote my life almost monastically to it um, a better decision or a a more um, tolerable decision because even if i end up in failure as we will all end up in failure we will all die right so even if if um you know our work doesn't do for us what we want it to do if if it doesn't sing to us if it doesn't sort of give us these moments of ecstasy it's still worth doing it's still the pursuit is it alone the the um the working up of the courage and the hope alone are inherently noble and worthy efforts. I think every time a person sits down with a piece of paper and a pen, that's a tremendously courageous and hopeful thing to do. And um, I, I think it's very beautiful. It's one of the more beautiful things that a human being can do.
0: I I, I so wholeheartedly agree. I I went to the seaside I went to the beach the other day with my daughter who's just coming up to two and we made sand castles and I was looking down the beach and seeing all these people all these adults and children scooping up sand into a bucket tipping it out lifting it up and every time the the delight on the faces of the children and the adults was identical uh although it was no surprise and these things were going to get washed away and it's very hard to feel kind of Lovecraft-esque kind of existential uh, horror at the world when you just think human beings can, despite everything we have to face, can kind of go down to the beach and find a load of kind of pulverised stone that's a bit wet and turn it upside down into a vaguely castle shape and just take such joy in it, you know? And I, I was like, yeah, you know, these things, it did seem... It, it seemed pointless and noble all at once it was really it was a real source of joy to me so i i so agree with you and i hope people listening take that to heart that there's you know when i have done meditation as well you know there's that buddhist thing about you meditate and you uh you sort of assign the merit of what you're doing to other people and i think that's always a nice thing when you're writing you know the fact that you're just turning up at all i i like the idea that somehow it's a kind of communal thing that we're all doing together, you know?
1: Oh, I think of that all the time, actually. So there are days when, you know, everyone's sad, right? Um, uh, you know, I've been sad for right, uh, since November 2016 in a way that I've never been sad in my life before. Um, and it's sometimes really hard with all the noise uh, to actually do that work and to sit down and actually to, to try, right? To uh, Trying... It's easier not to try. It's easier to um, watch Netflix all day, or it's easier to, you know, um, just fill your time with um, the junk food of activity. But it's um, it is it is so important to do the thing that feeds you um, and that makes you into a better human being. Um, and I think some of the times. You know, I'm I'm deeply, deeply anti-capitalist. And I think that this um, the world in which we live, it, it's an end process focused world. Right. I mean, we we all celebrate the book coming out in the world, but we don't celebrate the hours of weeping that it took to get there. Mm. Um, but it's it's not the, the and, you know, this is my Florida is my fifth book. And I am still the incredibly flawed human being that I was before I published any books at all. I haven't gotten better um, to the point that I want to, but I do think the the sheer number of hours spent working my way into a deeper, more empathetic understanding of humanity, those add up to um, to be the vehicle of goodness it's not the books themselves I'm very grateful that the books themselves have come into the world but it's the the act of showing up that is actually the the beautiful part of creation
0: so I and I I just thank you so much Lauren it's really I'm really just enjoying uh I I, I agree and feel like I'm learning so much from uh li- listening to this I I I want to just very briefly touch on uh, Fates and Furies, which I know you've talked about a lot before, um, before we jump into Florida. Um, I'm also going to do that awful thing of using this as an opportunity to say what you feel the difference is. And there there is a very obvious one, but um, between writing a novel and writing a short story, because people often talk very glibly between ah I think they're different forms and then often don't really go into what they mean by that and no one challenges them on it um how is it for you I mean I know one is obviously longer than the other and takes a lot long theorized theoretically um so can we just really quickly maybe just touch on Uh, your experience of writing Fates and Furies*, and how novels are different to you than the short stories you've written?
1: Sure. So I will say that um, I do think uh, writing a short story is closer to writing a poem, right? It's a brief ecstatic flair. Whereas writing a novel is very much uh, carrying around um, another human being and being less lonely by, by building this other human being that you're creating. I, 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 that's, this is the way that I do it. And it, some of it is um, also process-based for me. For a novel, I really do show up. I write a full draft longhand, throw it out, start over again, throw it out, start over again. You know, I, and, I, and I write full drafts until I get to the point where I've written a working draft that I know that I can fix to the point that it is actually it works. And and what this does in multiple ways is one it um between drafts because I'm not looking at the words that I've written because I actually can't read my own handwriting. Um it's uh, it's almost as though a forest fire comes through this really like trashy brushy place and then everything that is left standing, left alive is is alive. It's meant to be in the book but the other thing this does is it allows me to fix the foundations of the story before i focus on the language and as i said you know i came to this um world as a poet and so the language is really where i get the the profound and constant joy but um i think before i can figure out the language i really 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 do need to understand what it is that i'm talking about who the characters are what the situation is, what the scenes are, you know, everything, everything that go into the first um, few drafts, uh, those need to be written out. And I end up, you know, having at least a couple of novels worth of material um, that never end up being in the book. But I feel like sometimes their resonance, their echoes come through the book in strange ways and, and sort of and and um, deepen different aspects of the book that are not even visible to the reader. Um, so that those are the two differences. Now, Fates and Furies was interesting because, um, like I said, I work on multiple projects at once, and I was writing Arcadia, it was like doing heart surgery on myself on a daily basis and then stitching up the chest, um, and it was really hard. So I thought, you know, what, what's going to pull me through is actually starting a new novel while I'm writing Arcadia, Oof. and the new <sighs> novel is going to be the opposite of Arcadia. And actually, all of my books are the opposite of the previous book, um, because uh, there's something in me that is just deeply, deeply oppositional. So, um, and I was like, so, well, what is Arcadia and what what do I want to be? The opposite. And so I came up with a list. I wanted Fates and Furies to be operatic. I wanted Fates and Furies to be infused with color. I wanted Fates and Furies um, to have a lot of sex in it, lots of sex. I wanted, I actually wanted it to be two separate novels. I wanted it to be um, a, like a his and hers, a Mr. Bridge and a Mrs. Bridge, that could be read backwards or forwards. Um, and it ended up being one novel after years of work, but that's okay. Um, and so I wanted it to be the very, very opposite of Arcadia, and I was writing two books that were also like kind of yin and yang at the same time. Um, and of course I finished Arcadia before I, long before I finished Fates and Furies, but that was um, the experience of doing it. And when I was writing it as two novels, it was like one of the more purely joyous modes of writing, because each book requires a different way of writing it. And so um, I put up on the walls of my cruddy Florida studio two giant pieces of butcher paper, And I would write a scene from the wife's point of view and then turn around and run across the room and write the scene from the husband's point of view. Wait,
0: sorry, you were writing on the... Were you writing on the walls? Yeah,
1: I was writing on the walls because that's... Holy shit! But then I would also, like, (laughs) like, rip, like, things out of magazines, it seemed... um, Like, uh, for a long time, um, uh, have you ever seen the movie L'Aventura? Um, it's like this Italian movie. No, I haven't. Um, and there's this incredible actress in it. And I'm, oh, of course, like her name's escaping me now. Monica something. Um, but the, her face was the face of Matilde for a very long time. And so, yeah, so I, I sort of built the the novel in two parts on opposite sides of a physical room.
0: That's so, because I spoke to the author uh, Joe Dunthorn a few months back and he talked about like sleeping in a room that he'd, papered with uh pages from his novel in the hope that he could like sleep and would kind of like subconsciously what does that do to your what does that do to your psyche like immersing yourself in a novel that in in a project that that deeply you must have some gnarly dreams
1: no so I never actually slept in that room like he did but I didn't
0: oh oh, no, no yeah but I mean just like but I've just been anchoring something in the way you talk about anchoring things physically. That seems it's almost like a kind of incantation. Right. And I just think that seems like that is a very visceral way of locating your art. And I'm just wondering, does that 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 it seems like you're kind of like you're fully full bodily experiencing your work. And I'm just wondering what that does to your, you you know, like how how do you get? I mean, does that allow you time off or?
1: no but i don't want time off right so (laughs) um yeah i'm a um i don't i don't really do anything but read and write and once in a while i'll I'll go out to dinner and uh, see my friends but um i have a very very quiet life i don't want time off because this is what i devoted my life to um but no so um i think uh, just to wind back this is the only time i've ever done that i've only ever done that with fates and furies and it's because the dictates of the idea required that I do it. Um, with *Arcadia*, I wrote it. Um, I stole something from Nabokov, and I wrote it on index cards um, first. Uh, the first like ten drafts were on index cards, which I then was able to sort of shift around and sort of um, look at and and develop from there into um, a, like a longhand version, and then into eventually a word version. Um, the Masters of Templeton was in um, single large pieces of paper, where each section was written all out. and so each book requires something different depending on its form.
0: That's so. So it sounds like. Do you think that then? Is it? Is it? Are there, is it do you do you feel like that it, that there's a danger of ossifying if you? if you find kind of like a single way of working?
1: To be honest, um, I would absolutely hate to write the same book over again. And I know there are plenty of writers on this planet who have made very beautiful careers out of for themselves out of writing the same book over and over. Um, but I um, I would not like that. So each book I, I need it to, to be um, the antidote to the previous book. Book in some ways, um, which means that I'm not, I don't think I'm ever going to find one way to, to write a book. I mean, I would say that if there's a book written in dialogue, I'd probably have to just transcribe it, um, voice transcribe it into my phone, right? I mean, like, um, or, or, you know, actually uh, eavesdrop on people until they start speaking <laughs> in a way that um, feels novelistic. I don't know. So I think it um, it all depends on the project, and because the projects, I don't want to do. I don't ever want to do books that feel the same, or even feel as though they could be written by the same writer, um, um, because I'm I'm never the same writer.
0: Hey, just jumping in to the interview for a moment to tell you that this episode of Death of a Thousand Cuts is supported in part by Mislexia magazine the UK's best-selling magazine for women who write. Read by top authors and absolute beginners, no other magazine provides Mslexia's unique mix of inspirational and thought-provoking articles, advice, reviews and interviews, as well as extensive listings for competitions, open submissions, courses and grants. To top it off, every issue comes with a showcase of poems and short stories from some of the best women writers working today. Issue 78 is out now, and Issue 79 is out September the 1st. So, you can get that. That's great. You can find them on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Mislexia or visit mislexia.co.uk to subscribe. So, that's the uh, little uh, advertising spiel that they've asked me to read out. Uh, I'd also just like to say, personally, I'm really grateful to Mislexia for sponsoring this episode. If I've put a link to their website, in the show notes to this and I'll put another one on my website so if you go there you can click on it and just go through to the website uh, particularly I just want to I would consider it a personal favor if you just click through and just check out their website it allows you to have a sneak peek at some of the stuff that's in the latest issue which um at the time of recording is um all about it's got some horror stories it's got nature writing it's got uh, an article on self-publishing and how it's continuing to go from strength to strength. It's got an article giving you advice on how to receive feedback, which, oh my goodness, I know that's something I could definitely uh, do with. It's got Jackie Kay, Ruby Tando, Nancy Revel. Um, it, it's just such a, uh, a, a a bumper feast of things for you to read. So I'm just going to say, you know, you click on the website, have a look. If you want to, you can immediately get yourself a, uh, a digital copy for a fiver. And if you want to subscribe and support new writing and support you know, a market for submissions and uh, just a magazine that champions uh, women's writing and the world of literature and stories and just cool stuff, Um, you can click on the link to subscribe costs about two quid a month which is just nothing is it like less than 50p a week um and just check it out i I really appreciate it but i'll put a link in the show notes you can click on that go through have a look um and thanks to them for sponsoring us today can we talk about uh, your collection Florida now because I'm, I'm like I've been really holding back like the, my feelings of restraint because I, I want to talk about this so much because I've been reading it over the last week uh, and I know it's I, I know to a certain extent you know you're drawing all these different stories together I'm now going to ask you to sort of summarize it as a collection I realize that that is to an extent an artificial uh, thing but could you just uh, for people listening describe talk about what Florida you know, give them a, set, a a flavor of it as a collection of short stories.
1: Sure. So, Florida um, for me is not just a geographical place full of um, dread and danger, <laughs> which it is, in uh, sunshine, in beautiful, beautiful sunshine. It's also um, a mental state. So, it's a it's a state of alienation, a state of sort of peril and. Sometimes terror and profound and almost pulsating love. So um, it's a, it's a really living place and a, and a um, it's a it's an emotion that sort of lives um, inside of uh, me in particular, and it's an emotion that's sort of born out of ambivalence, which I see not as um, a feeling of you know wishy-washiness, but rather as a feeling just like being pulled in multiple directions by strong emotions. So um, so I, I moved to Florida 12 years ago. Um, I did not ever want to live in Florida and in fact uh, it took me five years just to like come around to the idea that I was living there. And um, so this book I just started writing stories when they sort of exploded um, in my brain and um, they all happened to be Florida stories and eventually I realized I had a collection and then I had to sort of um to to figure out the way that the stories spoke to each other, so that it built a much larger argument, which I hope that it does
0: I am gonna just in, insert my one bit of um of, of sycophancy here, which is that I've been reading these stories and that they are reminding me and waking me up to to new ways. Well, of ways that I suppose of have always existed, but of of telling stories, of exploring characters, of just of just being in a fictional world that I haven't felt for ages, and I'm I've loved every single one of them that I've read. And when you said that, you know, your background was in poetry, I I I I you know, part of me was like, ah, I ca- called it. I knew it. I knew I spotted a poetry and poet in there, not because it's um because it's hugely embroidered, but because there is a quality of seeing in all of these stories that absolutely blows the top of my head clean off, and I have to remove it from the ceiling with a spatula. What? So my main question that I've been waiting all interview to get to is how the hell do you write like this? How do you see stuff like this? Because every page has got things in it where I'm like, my God, that feels so real. I can only think that you have collected that from your own life and that that moment that you've noticed something and you've put it away in a little you've sealed it up like a lightning bug in a jar and then we are getting this incredible menager- menagerie that must have taken a whole lifetime to collect either that or this is you're just amazing at confidently bullshitting stuff that sounds like it it was taken from your life and i want to know like how do you go about Right, you know, just to take like say the the opening story for example, uh, go, uh, Ghosts and Empties, where you've got this uh, narrator uh, walking around her neighbourhood, uh, looking at looking in various neighbours' windows. It's absolutely incredible for. This series of small vignettes and stories of little glimpses of life, of humanity that she sees. And yet the game that you set up at the beginning is each of these are going to be interesting. Well, I was like, well, three into this. You can't maintain this. Surely this is going to get boring. Like, surely you cannot maintain this level of quality. And yet you do. And I want to know how you did it because it's... And and, and, well, I'll I'll shut up now. But that's my uh, that's my question how <laughs>
1: that was the nicest question i've ever been asked in my life thank you um that, no so so um here's the thing um I, because i don't um believe in sort of the end product even though the end product eventually happens it is all about noticing in the quality of attention right so it's it's about um sitting with an image until it comes clear it's about closing your eyes uh, before you start a scene and invoking every single sense as deeply and intricately as you possibly can. And it's not going to end up in the page most of the time. But again, right, there there are things that happen under the level of language that are not traceable necessarily to either the writer or the reader, but they end up um, being felt, right? It's all about a a series of feelings. Um, And I think that if you if you're a, if you're a creative person um um and you you must maintain a level of attention and um almost heartbroken love for this broken world of ours <laughs> this is a messed up world of ours and and if you do um have this quality of attention the the objects will speak to you so i um one of my friends is uh, the the good writer charlie Baxter, and uh, Charles Baxter, and he's just, he's amazing. And he has this incredible um, thing that he does, which is he makes his classes uh, stare at a pencil for a very long time. And what this does is, um, at first you have to work really hard through your own boredom by staring at a single pencil for an an hour. Um, But eventually, you start noticing the profound details, right the quality of the light on the table and the way that the table's pores are different than the pores in the wood and the way that someone had gnawed on a bit of the eraser and so you start to see more and more deeply into the the truth of the object itself so it's a it's um it's about just having patience um with your own self and with the world around you I think um you know. I, I don't know. I don't know. But I, I do, do you, think. Do
0: you... Yeah, go ahead. I would just want to say do you collect these things in a, 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 a notebook? Or do you, I mean, do you, do, do you, will you be on a walk or somewhere and see something and sort of think, ooh, I can stick that in my scrapbook and at some stage that will become useful? Or are these things that you, are these part of the reality? Do you, are you, do these come, or serially in the story as you write it?
1: So um, when I said that things build in the subconscious, I actually intentionally do not try to write a lot of um, things down because I think sometimes you spill the magic when, when you write things down um, or write notes down. But um, if there is a story sort of congealing the back of your head um, and you do notice something, you can throw those details back into the story, right? And, and sort of hope... That when you go to sit down to write the story, they'll come back. And I, my experience is, if you're thinking about a story deeply enough, and if you're letting it mature in your subconscious um, enough, um, then these things will absolutely come back to you. I mean, it's. I think that there's, um, there's a feeling sometimes in writers of scarcity, but there's no, there's not a lot of scarcity. Things really, uh, living things, things that you notice um, that are alive, that actually are speaking to the story at hand. They will always come back to
0: you. I, I think it was like, I'm going to be incredibly pretentious now and, and, and quote someone whose name I can't even properly pronounce. But I think it was like, I was reading Osip Mandelstam, uh, his journey to Armenia, where he was talking about the Armenian people having a splendid intimacy with the world of the real. And that's something that I got from your book and the way you talk about Florida is this in your incredible ability to kind of connect with what i always bore my writing students to death with the phrase crunchy specificity that you're able to to leap out and talk about the uh the type of tree the the type of snake the type of bird and really really zero in on what a thing is and the names of things in an almost talismanic way. I just wanted to ask to kind of uh, finish up here. Um, How do you think... And I'm just asking. I'm actually asking. Not. I, I. I made out that I was doing this in a kind of like in, incredibly reverential way. But what my question it turns out is, how can we ruthlessly strip mine your years of craft in order to um to to benefit from them ourselves? How how can we how can we how can how can we cultivate this ability to kind of get this? Because it's not just seeing things. You kind of like have. You've acquired the names of things as well, and it kind of like builds together into this wonderful tapestry. And I was wondering, just if you got any advice for people listening, for my, our fellow writers who are going to sit down at that coalface tomorrow morning? Um, how can they start to zero in like you have? Because there's a real intimacy and livingness to the writing. And I wondered if you had any um, what I'm going to call tips.
1: Yeah. So, um, the tips are you have to read poetry, I mean, that's the, that's my number, uh, number one tip because I think that, um, fiction writers do not read poetry nearly enough. Nobody is as intimate with the world as a poet. Nobody is able to see the form underlying the, the chaos, um, like poets. Nobody has sort of a sense of crunchy specificity or the, the whatever. I think that was what you said. <laughs> that was so, it. Yes, yes well yeah, done. I love it. Nobody has that better than poets. So so learn from our betters, right? I mean, read as much as possible. And the, and um, I think the other thing too is um, just you know um, keep the keep keep your work. Um, in the sacred space within yourself, and I know that sounds really mystical, but it, what I mean is don't allow it into the world until it feels right, because there is a sort of a, a charge in, in its own slow development. So I think that um, the, the longer you allow work to develop within itself and to, to, to build its own meaning, the the more um superfluity um, is sort of stripped out and the more precise you become i believe this so don't show stuff too early
0: um lauren i just want to say sincerely uh thank you so so much it's been a a, a privilege a an education and a and a real delight i've had an absolute scream chatting to you thank you so much for your uh time and sharing your uh your wisdom and and for being so kind of honest and straightforward with us i really really appreciate it
1: it was beyond a pleasure thank you for having me on the podcast thank you
0: and um everyone listening i'm going to uh pop links to uh lauren's work in the show notes so if you want to uh, grab a copy then um i will uh I will put that there for you and you can click through. Uh, Thank you very much for listening and take care and I will see you next time.